Hi, everyone. Welcome to What's Your Why, a new podcast showcasing the greatness of people through their life stories. Each episode will capture insight into the lives of people just like you and I, with the intention to connect, align, and create inspiration for and with our listeners. Stay with us through our What's and Why segment, where we dive into our guest perspective with some thought-provoking questions that just might be right up your alley. I'm your host, Helen Dillon, and thanks for joining us. Now let's get into it. Inspiration is to spur on, motivate, or impel, to influence, incite, and infuse. These are all fitting characteristics of my friend, R. Scott Evans. Scott and I met many years ago while both active in the horse show scene. He was supporting a high-performance farm at a prestigious equestrian competition, and I was managing the operations at one of the competition rings. Upon introduction, I immediately felt a kinship for him, and we became fast friends. I was attracted to his vigor, charisma, his overall love of life, and everything he was doing in it. Until now, I hadn't really thought about why that was. I just knew that I could hang on his every word, as it was always so fitting, encouraging, and meaningful. He spoke right to my heart and to my mind, and he continually inspires me to think, be, and do better for myself with who and what I hold in my space. Inspiration is the key word here, and Scott Evans exudes it. It's in his core, and he passes it on to those he meets. From learning simple life lessons to creating inspiration that provokes a change, Scott Evans will be my go-to every time. Take pleasure in meeting my inspiring friend, and enjoy the episode. If I go a little off course, I just grab myself and stay true to you. Come back on course, get between those lines, stay in your lane, and keep going forward. Thank you for being here and joining us today. And I'm actually going to let you take it away and tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, your background, your bio. Floor is yours. So uh, basically to begin, I am an equestrian that has been very, very much blessed with a career starting back when I was literally 17 years old. The second I got out of high school, I was offered a, a training job as a, an assistant, and I took advantage of that in Maryland for several years with Kim Rehuba, who is now Kim Williams, and her family. And uh, we just had the best time. I was so green. I knew exactly what I needed to do to get the job done with the horses. And as far as preparing the horses and with the kids, I had learned from some good teachers and trainers growing up, but I really jumped right in. And it was something where we all, Kim and I often think about our days together during those two and a half, three years I was with the the Rahuba family and we did it ourselves. I mean, I was there with one other person who helped us uh, get the horses and ponies to the ring and back. And, but we were there braiding our own in the morning. Kim was, you know, always there helping to take care of her sister's ponies or his or brother's ponies. And, you know, it was a different time then. I, I That's always that cliche that we say, but it really was a different time. And mm-hmm. I'm so grateful to have had that because I grew up in my teens as a groom. I was well, I was a bit of a dog with a bone early on. I wanted to be with the very best as a kid. So at 14 years old, my parents uh, literally let me loose. And during my summer months, the day after I got out of school until the day before, I would be on the road. And at that time, the professional junior rider was Marianne Steyer. She was a 
very famous about literally she could ride everything from the small ponies up to the junior hunters. And I just really had to be with the best. I found that I learned more about how to prepare animals for competition, namely because we had one rider and typically anywhere from 18 to 22 horses on the road for the one rider. So we had to prepare them get them to the ring and have Marianne do her thing. And it was a phenomenal time, which led me to work with Jimmy Lee, which has been a mentor in my life. And then that literally led to the Rehuba family. The more I did in the state of Maryland growing up, the more uh, attention was brought to where I was going with my career. So I have to say, uh, having that chance was something, as my father said, you're never going to get an opportunity like this again. So you are going right into your career and uh, best of luck and we'll be there to support you. And I literally, the rest was history because I just took off. And as I said, the Rehuba family, there were three riders and then they had a cousin as well. So I was outnumbered. Mm-hmm by many and um diane rahubu would drive the gooseneck and i'd have the two horse behind her and off we'd go and we traveled and we competed and we won and it was really an incredible time so being able to have that you know because that can't doesn't really exist anymore now i find myself talking about how it would be great to get back to some simpler times learning more about the horse care preparation management And most of all, for people like myself to have an opportunity like that. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I think is really key right now is as I look back on those times and into from my late teens into my early 20s. And then one thing led to another. And again, I just had to keep taking that next step on the ladder. And I headed north. And Tim Keyes was uh, very instrumental in showing me the way to Ronnie Much and Nimrod Farm. I'll never forget it. I did not know that. Yeah. That's new information for me. Yes, it is. And nobody really knows it except for some of the, the old guard that we were all together back then. And I'll always remember Ronnie Much and the the care. And most of all, it was how things were presented. Ronnie presented uh, a horse to the in gate pretty much like no other. It was it was the look and the feel and the pizzazz and the style. And he brought that Madison Avenue advertising type of uh, background to the equestrian world. And that was in the days of um, Ronnie Much, Victor Hugo Vidal, George Morris, and one thing led to another. At that particular time, believe it or not, once I moved north, Victor Hugo Vidal was heading west, as I said, to the sun. He was like he was he was finished with Connecticut and he was moving west to start out his career on the West Coast and continue being the top horseman that he that he was. And I'll mm-hmm. always remember coming home from, I think it was the Saratoga Horse Show and, and Farmington uh, Polo Club on Monday morning. I was on the couch at uh, Leslie Burr Lenahan Howard, now Leslie Howard, uh, at, at, at their house. Oh, nice. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm making sure I give everybody credit. Les and, and, and Brian uh, Lenahan and Bill Ellis and Bruce Burr, they all had a house in Fairfield. Well, I was on the couch on Monday morning after being on the road for two weeks with this crazy bunch. Learned more than you can imagine. I'm sure. I saw that the care was just uh, all the way around. The care was incredible. And next thing I knew, I was going down to Cedar Lodge Farm in Stamford, Connecticut. 
and uh, Dana Douglas Younghair was um, the assistant with Victor for many years. And she said, I need somebody. I need you. And next thing I knew, I jumped into uh, the land of equitation. And I, as Bruce Burr said, I learned what a one-day horse show was. And I became uh, very aware of what it takes to win in the equitation in the Northeast. Who made you the most aware of that? I, truthfully, I would have to say, listening to Dana and her teaching, she could make a day out of a flower box on the ground. It was incredible. And I would sit there in just wonderment. I said, Dana, you've got a whole poles and course, a whole course of cavalettis and brush boxes and poles. And she said, but that's the best way to learn, learning stride, learning pace, learning track. And even back then, it, it was the first thing that really struck me. And she said, look, you come from the, the hunter world. I understand that. But here's what you have to realize. This world is the equitation world. And you know, the Northeast is where that's what you're going to be studying. Well, I literally, she had so many students at that point. I literally got my red rabbit, my Volkswagen little, and off I went. My little, I mean, it was the tiniest little thing in the world. And she would say, whatever you do don't lose that six horse truck in front of you. And so I would follow every, I mean, we would literally, we'd have to do three and four one day horse shows a week. And I didn't know where I was going, whether it was Long Island, Connecticut, New Jersey. My job was to get there, follow the truck and prepare the horses before the customers and the clients got there. Mm -hmm. And I learned a lot about how to prepare them. I mean, I was on them every morning. I had an incredible team. And Bruce Burt, to this day, we had a, just a laugh about it in October at one of the Split Rock shows. He was like, good God, you had to do so many of them. And I'll never forget it. And they, they all laughed after the first year. They literally called me the king of the one-day horse show because they would send me off with a group of four riders, and it would be a different four riders at least every other day, different set of horses, and that was my job. I would just set them up. I would prepare. I'd get them ready, and Dana would either show up at the last minute or she'd say, you're off on your own. I've got to go to another show or I've got something else. Tell me how it goes tonight. And so the tri-state area, it, that, that's – I had never been other than to go to you know new york city to go to radio city music hall for you know the the nutcracker or the you know radio city something or other i had never been in the northeast before and it was a yeah. whole new experience to this day i am so grateful because it really uh, gave me the direction of my training my teaching uh learning how to uh walk the talk because I had come from again, the you know the the equitation class was the warm up class yeah. in 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 the Virginia area where I grew up in Maryland and Virginia and in the Carolinas it was it literally it was the warm up class, not on the West Coast. Oh no! Oh no! Oh no! And and so that basically led to the next step, and I will always credit this incredible gentleman back in the day uh, at Fairfield Hunt Club, Emerson Burr. Emerson was uh, in a league of his own. He was a horseman uh, unlike any other, certainly, that I knew of, and I had never been exposed to a guy. He literally took 
these pony riders. And I mean, he had a slew of pony riders at the Fairfield Hunt Club. And he was literally like a Pied Piper. And I learned so much. I'd go to the one-day shows. He'd always see me there for the one-day shows all winter long, colder than you can imagine. And you'd have to prepare and go. Yeah, and I'll I'll always remember that, and I always thought how special it was to have a indoor ring for warm up attached to the show ring, and I thought, now this is this is high living, this is a big deal. Well, I I became very well versed at that that indoor ring uh, for many a year while I was there, and Emerson one day said to me, I think you need to judge a little. Why don't you come for our Wednesday member shows? And I was like, well, what's he said? Just just come. Just come. So I went Wednesday member shows were on the school horses and all the kids, all the members would ride school horses in these shows and they were famous for them. Well, that's the way I started to learn how to judge. And it was to the point where, and I'll always remember this, there were some under saddle classes and you're not judging quality of movement. You're hoping that, you know, everybody stays on. That's right. And I'll never forget as long as I live. And they changed direction and walk, trot, canter. And all of a sudden, I'm just about to finalize that last number. And all of a sudden, I hear from the angry, this very loud walk. And that was Emerson because he knew that one of them was about to take off any minute. And he would time it. Whether you had the number or not, you better have you better be organized. Mm-hmm. And he and I'll always remember it to this day. I'm always one that after the first direction, I'm pretty sure where everybody's fitting in. And if I have a maybe this or a maybe that, I'll keep that in the okay, well, that can slip into that part of in the order. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but Emerson to this day, I think of Emerson all the time when I'm judging because he began my judging career. I lived in the second ring, in the mm-hmm. short stirrup ring, in the I mean in the un, uh, in the unrated ring, and I and it was far far away from the main ring. I lived there for so long judging, I can't even tell you. But I, I learned. I mean, the bottom line is, I really learned. And I, whenever anybody asked me for my advice about the judging, they said, "What do you suggest? I want to go judge, you know, at this double A or this." I was like. <laughs> How about the unrated ring? How about paying your dues? Yeah, and learn. I mean, really get comfortable with the bookkeeping and most importantly, understanding what you are drawn to. Mm-hmm. What is your like? What do you like? What do you dislike? What do you know works? And, and and that's where I always say that the judging helped my teaching. My teaching helped my training and my training comes back and helps the judging. So the teaching was one thing, the training was another, and the judging was another. And I literally felt that each and every one of them helped me Mm -hmm. so much. Is that when you first sort of started to pay attention to your inner voice a little bit? I think that's um, something that takes all of us a little bit of time to learn. Some people never learn it. But is that when you sort of when ah, I really enjoy this and I need to listen to my inner voice and understand what it is I like and stay true to that? I have to agree with you on that. And also um, learning how to teach at Cedar Lodge. I mean, I credit Dana Younghair so much. And at that time, I met Kip Rosenthal. 
Mm. And Kip was studying, and we lived together. We had a house together in Stanford, Connecticut. Oh, those were the days. An amazing you know. point. Again, I didn't know. Yeah, and it's it's one of those. And they and Dana said, "No, you you can live with us for now. You'll, you, I'm going to introduce you to Kip." Well, Kip was, you know, she was important. I, you know, she she had written Good Boy D. She had had all this you know, incredible, incredible success. Well, what I didn't realize is that Kip was probably one of the best teachers that I would ever, ever become exposed to. I mean, she, and at that time, she was studying to be a sports psychologist. And so I uh, would be on the road all weekend long. And then Monday morning, when I was my one morning to sleep in, every once in a while, she'd come in when I was asleep and she would do tests on me to see what my, uh uh-huh, from a drip uh-huh. If you can see my face. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and she would drip. She would see what the response. She was like, and I, 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 I got to the point where I wouldn't even open my eyes. I said, is this a test? And she was like, just need to check on response. And then she'd laugh and then go out of the room. But it was one of those things that I'll always remember, Kip. And I owe her so much because she taught me how to – take what I knew from my the inside, from my gut, and from what I knew from feeling, and then to be able to put that into words. And that was a big one. And really believe in it. And to be able to um, project that. Because uh, at that time, we had some incredible riders that were uh, connected to Cedar Lodge. Incredible riders. I could name a lot of names and I was so impressed. And they were only a little bit, you know, I was only a little bit older than them. So I was, you know, I had to make sure that I was really on top of it and, and Dana prepared me for it. But then she also would send me out there and say, okay, go do it. Mm-hmm. Go for it. And then one thing led to another and Kip with all these tests. Next thing I knew she was, Getting and she got me into Pace University in uh, Pleasantville, New York, and I uh, got involved in the theory of teaching. And uh, she got me set up to teach a course. I said, "I feel like I'm teaching teachers to teach." She goes, "You are. Yeah. That's exactly what you're learning to do." And I had a, a a real theory of teaching course in their equestrian studies, and I really enjoyed that because then you had to be able to bring it into the classroom. Mm-hmm. And that was a, a big eye opener. And and at that time is when I was also pursuing my judging career even more. And one thing led to another. And uh, again, I'm so grateful having experienced how to handle somebody in a classroom, how to give them the tools. And Kip was all about steps. Give them steps. Follow the steps. And she literally, she she and I would talk about this endlessly about what the steps were. And she came from the sports psychology point of view. And I would often question her saying, but but what happens when you have to be in the moment? You've got to change a little. She goes, that's being flexible. Now you've got to start thinking about how are you going to teach a rider to be flexible and how are you going to teach a rider to be a better listener mm-hmm. and most importantly listening to the horse and i'll oh that part was a to this day i think about that and i i i say thank you to uh to kip to dana to the people that really helped me understand that because that was something that i had no idea what that meant right. i had no idea 
How lucky for you to have such amazing influences at such an early age. For any of our listeners that are not recognizing the names that Scott's saying, Google them. They're, uh, they're important people in the industry, and they deserve notoriety for sure. So thankfully and lucky for you, you had such a great, a great uh, tutelage early on. And the sports psychology was something so new to me. And, and, and again, Kip really took it seriously. Um, yeah, yeah. She, she really worked with a lot of riders in her career and always kept it quiet, very much you know, under the radar with the work that she did. She worked with the, the best of the best. And probably the beginnings of maybe mental yes. skills coaching and that kind of thing, because we'd be talking about, without being offensive, we're not the 70s, we're talking maybe about the 80s, right? 80s, 80s. Yeah, 80s, absolutely. No, 80s. And that was the thing. It was, she was so ahead of her time, yet she knew how important it was because she said, look, I struggled. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, you know, I was tougher on myself than anybody. I'll always remember her saying that. And that part right there, from a sports psychologist's point of view, and how do you present a situation to them? Well, let's say you've got this situation coming up and you're on course. Let's talk it out. And she'd literally take you step by step. And if you needed a plan B, here's what you're you're aiming towards. And you may be planning on a such and such, but have a backup. Know that you can fall back on it. And it, I think that's, you know, kind of like uh, planning on something yet dealing with what the is, what is in the moment mm-hmm. is a strong one. That's yeah. a strong one. And very, very helpful. So that has stayed with me my entire career. And and then one thing led to another. And being competitive, I then wanted to be at the top of my game with the judging is the best way I can. How do I get to the top of the, my game with my judging? And I literally became so focused on it. And I said yes to every job that was offered to me. I was available for every second ring, which then led to, you know, the main ring, which then led to me being on the road uh, every every week for years. Uh, and then I was living in New York City uh, doing a reverse commute to the horses, which I was very grateful to be doing. I was fortunate in working with a voice coach because I was doing a lot of um, clinics and, mm-hmm. and starting to do, and Kip was really pushing me to to do more clinics. She goes, "It's time for you to now get out there, start getting out there more in the public." And uh, between the clinics and the judging, I literally really found myself moving forward into a career that I could have walked away from at one point because I was offered some uh, some very interesting opportunities to stay in New York, mm-hmm. and I chose the horses. I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to go this direction and continue on this path. And then one thing led to another, finally decided I was going to move out of New York city with Kim Tudor, who was living in New York at the time. And so we had incredible time together. We have, uh, so many memories, but she called me one after she was like, guess what I've just done. I was like, what? She was like, I found the spot in New Jersey. I was like, what are you talking about, New Jersey? She's like, I did. Is that the cottage? That's the cottage. It's beautiful. I was like, what do you mean? She goes, I just want you to come out. And we had had been out to Hunterdon County. You know, we had been going to visit some friends and such. And I went out there and she goes, I've had my car broken into enough. I'm done with New York. I'm, you know what? It'll always be there for us. We lived there in the best of times. And she looked at me and she goes, 
when he moving in. You're really and I because I look, kept looking at her going, God, this is so nice out here. It's in the middle of the woods. And, and so literally that's when I moved in with Kim Tudor and we lived together in New Jersey in the college for 15 years. I'm totally jealous of you right now. And we both said to this day it's our best relationship ever. And it'll probably be our best relationship for the rest of our lives. We are just truly best friends mm-hmm. and and it's a lifetime and and so i literally i'd be on the last flight out on tuesday and the last flight back in on sunday into newark yeah i'd get my laundry done on monday and turn around and dry cleaning the fast track pick it up monday night back on the plane on tuesday and i did that literally for 15 years do you feel like you've missed 15 years of your life there a little bit the one thing that kim always says is that Yep. He'd be getting in about midnight, you know, Sunday night and Monday I'd go down to the, I, I'd get rolling. I'd go to the dry cleaners. I'd do the morning chores and I would go to the grocery store and Monday was, I'd cook. Mm. It was the two of us. And, and we'd have guests over. If we had people that were in town, they'd come over on Monday night for dinner. But I mean, oh no, the wine was flowing. The the food was, was being prepared and that was what I loved so much. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I became very much aware of, I, I was the seat of the pants. I no more knew what I was doing in the kitchen than fly to the moon, but I started creating these things, one thing after another. And that's what led to my incredible passion for food and mm-hmm. wine and, and following that. Again, Thanks to Kip Rosenthal, we had I had done so much with these different riders, etc. Uh, that led to Joan London actually coming to me, who I had been with for years because of her daughter Jamie riding with Kip, and I had been there as a as a mentor to them and and kind of seen them through all the careers. And Joan said, "You know, you're all about this taking care of you." And I had talked to her about meditation and told her that how much it had really transform my life. I was very fortunate when I was in New York City to be under the influence of some incredible people that said, you know, you'll find this very helpful. This is a great tool. Well, it changed my life. Uh, It saved my life. To this day, I continue to use meditation. But Joan said to me, she goes like, I'm doing a book on healthy living. I was like, you're? Mm -hmm." And you're going to be a part of it. I said, how's that? I mean, I know, again, this is Joan London, who was, you know, big career, life. <laughs> good morning America for, you know, 25 years, et cetera. And I said, so she goes, I just think this, you, you've shown me what meditation's done for you. I'm starting to learn more about it. And one thing led to another. And I uh, lived back and forth between Greenwich, Connecticut, and New Jersey, working with her on um, helping to produce uh, Joan London's Healthy Living. Yeah, that was an incredible experience because we literally had an office downtown New York. I was working with other producers and they just said, do your thing. You're going to you know, go out there and do the research and find things that you think are going to uh, help people mm-hmm. become more mindful. And then Joan being Joan had at her fingertips, she was able to interview these incredible, Incredible people. And I was able to be a part of gathering this information. And lo and behold, that's when 
Joan London's Healthy Living was created. And then there was Joan London's Healthy Cooking. So I gave up a whole, I gave up three months in the summer, lived in uh, in Manhattan during the week. Kim Tudor to this day, she laughed. She was like, he'd just make up things. And I, and I would, I'd come back on Mondays and I'd say, okay, here's a new sauce for the, the sea bass that I'm going to create. And she'd look at me, you what? <laughs> and we named it Heavenly. I've oh, got you. She came up. I mean, we came up with names for all the, you know, all of the all of the different dishes and Heavenly hash. And I'd make a, a corned beef hash or a this or that. And then the sea bass that was the uh, some sort of a sauce that I'd come up with. And I literally learned how to cook because she would bring in these recipes and I would be the test. So when she'd get off air every during the week, she'd come over to the apartment and there would be the new recipe yeah. on the, on the table. And we would, <laughs> we would sit there and do this. And I thought, now, how can I even tell anybody that the experience of this, because it was just, we had, and we only had, 90 days to produce the whole book. Oh, wow. I mean, it was really ready, get set, go. And so I'll always be grateful to Joan for having me be a part of that. And again, she's a, a lifelong friend. And that came from the horse world. You never know who you're going to meet in the horse world. And that's the thing that's so interesting. And to this day, I am so grateful for the people that I've met through my career. And, uh, that then led to Hampton Classic and dealing with that. Can I ask, when you were in those moments, you know, in New York and working with Joan and the production teams and things, were you very aware that was leading to more or something bigger? Or how were you sort of resonating within that space during that time? That's a great question because the interesting thing is that Joan say, okay, by the way, you're going to be responsible for getting quotes from dynamic women for healthy living. I said, oh, really? Yeah. And I, Oprah Winfrey, Hillary Clinton, and the list kept going. And I was responsible for make me. Do you just call them? Do you just, hey, Oprah, hey, oh. You go through 12 people. You start with the 12th in the order and then you go through and she'd say, how'd you do today? I'm getting a little closer. Wow. And next day, how are you getting a little closer? I mean, literally, and I write down to Hillary Clinton, you know, at that time when, when uh, President Clinton was in office. And that was the incredible thing is that I said, just said, yes. Can you do that? Yes. Can you get, yes. Are you going to be able to get in touch with them? Absolutely. No problem. And I would just sit there and figure it out. And that in its in its own way is a lesson in life. Very much so. And that was probably one of my greatest lessons because I learned, and that was what Joan continued to say to me. She goes, when they ask you if you can do it, absolutely, sure thing, and just go with it. And then you'll figure out how to do it. And that was, a, again, a great lesson for me that I encourage so many to this day. You know, when they ask you, can you, absolutely, and you just figure it out. Because I think the more we can encourage people with that ideology of life and understanding that you really can do that, you really can go there on that level, that things appear when you when you put that type of effort, self-effort behind it. Mm -hmm. Just believing in yourself is... Very much so. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. And that literally then led me to Hampton Classic. And that was talk about 
learning by the seat of my pants. Um, Tony Hitchcock and Gene Lindgren at the time were very much in charge and, and heading the lead for all of us. And uh, Tony would literally hand me the sponsor book and say, okay, get used to uh, go through this, memorize it understand what you have. And I'll, I'll see you at the sponsorship workshop in New York. And so I would go there and that's how I literally learned from A to Z in, in, in the sponsorship land. And he, to this day, he says, I don't ever know what your job title was, but apparently that we needed, you needed to do what you did. And what I did was the following. I was the bridge between the equestrian community and the corporate world, Manhattan comes to the country. And so I was literally the connector. So when the likes of back in the day when we launched American Express, Calvin Klein had the style award there and they and Calvin was very much involved at the time with the, with the company. And it was just in its heyday. Nine West, I mean, Keels, the list is endless what we had. It was just Crown Royal, all of these and uh, one thing led to another. So I was the one that would literally, when they were doing their corporate entertainment on the weekends, I would go by table to table, do my thing, and I would explain what the backdrop was, which was, of course, our sport. But they didn't know what they were watching. They had no idea. They just knew that they wanted to be in the fashionable Hamptons for Labor Day weekend because it was the you know a social event of the season. So I really learned how to talk about our sport and how to get people to realize that when the poll comes down, that's a, that those are false. And one thing led to another. I started taking them out on the course before the class would begin and just get them. So they kind of felt up close and personal. Yeah. And it was my job, again, did not know in the, the world what my job description was, but I, what I did know is that it was a great way to be a connector. And, and what I learned is the networking. I learned how to network, bottom line, and it was by the seat of my pants. I find it amazing that sponsorship is such a big role at competitions, especially in the United States. And I find it intriguing that you were, for lack of a better term, thrown into that role. And I have no doubt that you would be successful at it. But I think that would be very challenging from an emotional point of view, from a success point of view, because it's sometimes hard to be successful in that role. And it sometimes makes you feel diminished or lesser. And I only know that because I've dabbled in that role a little bit myself with Equestrian Management Group in Canada here. Was that hard? Was that hard on your on your morale? I, I tell you what, I, what I uh, neglected to share is that also, a way that I got to know Kim Tudor is that she taught me everything that I know about sponsorship at the Winter Equestrian Festival. That's where I really, really didn't know what I was doing whatsoever. Right. And I was the, I, I was a gopher. Mm -hmm. I literally, whatever needed to be done, I did. And she led me into working for Stadium Jumping basically during the birthing of the Winter Equestrian Festival during the, you know, the first... Like in the 80s, 90s type of thing. Yeah, very much so. And I am so grateful for that. I mean, that was another piece of the pie that I learned early on. And that's when Kim and I became so tight. Watching Kim, uh, again, the way she is with people and the way she dealt with sponsors back then. Uh, Gene Mish, I owe a, a, a great deal of my career to. Um, he really took a ch real shot on me. 
in 86, I believe it was, when we had the World Cup finals in Tampa, Kim had taken a job with Miller Harness Company, and I was on my own. And I literally had to do that on my own. And I'll never forget it. It was such an incredible experience. And it was great until, and we had, back in the day, we would have two weeks of showing in Tampa after the Wellington shows. Mm -hmm. So we get to Tampa and we're doing fine. And then this is leading up to the World Cup finals where I have literally about 60 or 70 sponsors of all levels. Right there, my heart just skipped a beat. Like, well, exactly. Just... I'll never forget it. And this is, I mean, he had vendors. They had sold everything during for this. And it was up to me. Well, all of his workers quit <gasps> right after Tampa. So I had to pull, I'll never forget it as long as I live. I am on my bike. I must have had 80, I think going back and forth, a total of 80 banners I had to put up in identifications that were very specific, mm-hmm. very specific, because you know the, there was royalty coming. There was this and that. He had sold out a whole area of a vendors' spaces and a whole hospitality area. Well, in those days, I put my Walkman on <laughs> and my headphones, <laughs> and I'll never forget it. And I, and off I went. And I that's when I really, really learned my craft. And that was before I got to Hampton Classic. And then one thing led to another with with Gene and Tony. And I think that's when Tony realized that what I do is that I'm I'm a connector and I'm a networker and I could bring these people in from Manhattan, whether it was the, the minions that, you know, that, that there were 10 minions with every one of the companies that you had to go through in order to get an answer. And they all were connected to their job. And, you know, out of respect, I wanted to make sure I was always following the right path and that was kind of before well maybe maybe cell phones have been okay maybe their cell phones were around but most of my phone calling was from the office so i'd sit there with a very large stack mm-hmm. and i would just do my calls and get everything organized and then go back out onto the field at hampton classic just like i had done at the world cup finals and i was responsible for all of the signage for years 15 years i mean it was a long run there yeah so having that really exposed me to the sport on a different level. I mean, McLean Ward and I, he, he still jokes to this day. He was, I think he was 14 years old when he won the speed derby out there. And in those days, I mean, the press, it, they really sent the press out. And all of a sudden he's for, and I said, okay, you need to come back to the winner circle. We're going to, he came, he looked at me and I mean, there must've been 18, 20 people coming at us, walking down with the with the recording devices in their hands. And he looked at me and he turned to me and goes, what do I say? What do I say? And I said, from this point forward, everything that you say and you do will be documented. So I said, let's just really, let's practice this. Remember, you're in this for the love of the game. And to this day, he, we were just on a, uh, we just did something last fall, actually, um, earlier this winter, actually. I mean, yeah, it was last fall. And uh it was a podcast, and he was like, "I'll always remember you were there for me." And we we learned together yeah. how to deal with the press. We learned because he, he was literally fourteen years old, and and it was really about how do we get people not only just interested in the sport, but getting the the the, the connection between horse and human, getting the connection to a sport that you know again it. 
it's a 50-50 chance the poll either stays up or it falls down. And, you know, there is more losing than there is winning in this game. Really have to be a good loser. You have to be able to just shrug it off. And being able to tell that to the corporate sponsors and getting them on board, they're like, oh, fascinating. And then all of a sudden, they became more engaged in our sport. And that's when, I, over the years, that's when I learned when I'd have those return customers and those return sponsors, and they'd be like, we we just love this game, and you all are the best people. And I'd always make sure that I'd bring people up to them, whether it was another sponsor or it was another rider or an owner, and uh, they loved it. You know, they, they loved it. Did you do sponsorship just for Hampton, or did you move away from judging a little bit and make that more your priority for a certain amount of time there? Judging was the number one. Hampton Classic was number two. And my clinics as well were were in that mix. So that was really my focus for quite some time because uh, I was very competitive. I wanted to get into the, I really wanted to be thought of as in the top 10 of the judging. And the only way I knew how to do is just do it and do it and do it. You know, and that was something that I'm so grateful to this day. I'm glad that I did it. I pick and choose my judging now. I don't think I could, you know, that, that that's a lot of traveling. It's a lot of different hotels. I'm glad I did it in my youth. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, and it was a little bit, it was a lot of a different time back then. And I, and even today, uh, when people talk to me about sponsorship and, and things, I said, you know, it's really, it's more important right now. We've got to get back to creating an experience for these people that they come and they're outdoors and they see this incredible animal. They sense the connection. Mm-hmm. They sense the connection. And I think the, and, and the beauty of it and the sex appeal. I mean, you know, that was something that Calvin really picked up on. I'll always remember when he created the, the style award, mm-hmm. you know, he had, he had that, it, it, he said, this is just, there's so much sex appeal in this. And he saw it from that point of view. And so Kelly Klein was, you know, so deeply involved in the horse world and and she's the one that really you know they came up with this whole concept and i learned a great deal from i i again i look back on that i'm incredibly grateful Mm -hmm. to have been thrown into the fire and then figure out how to deal with it Mm -hmm. so then what happened next so you're judging you're on the road a million weeks a year you're tired yet over it yet getting there Yes, but then, you know, I wanted to get to uh, judging the top. And in 1995, I was very grateful to be able to judge the McClay finals and with Hap Hansen and design our course. And so we got to design it together. And of course, I made Hap jump it out in California and I had to do it long distance. And I'd say, okay, here it is. Let's and it was it was such an incredible experience because at that time the National Horse Show had moved out of the city and it was at Meadowlands in East Rutherford, New Jersey. Okay. So it was a, a different time, but it was still the same thing. And it was such an incredible experience for me. I will always look back at that as being a, again, a, a very important moment in my career because it was, it brought it full circle. Mm-hmm. There I was in the Northeast in New, in New Jersey. I'd lived there. That's where I'd really, you know, figured out my life and, and, and learn the ups and downs. And then I was able to then be a part of, the sport on that level. And that was an important moment for me. Is that when you felt like you had made that top 10 and you, that was it, you'd made it. That was. 
it was one of those, you know, it was, it, you know, it was, it was, it was one of those um, moments that I was incredibly grateful for. I was even more grateful for after the, after the finals, I heard from some people that I had great respect for and they phoned and they said, not only was that a, you know, fascinating course, but you all were spot on. It was great fun to be a part of that. And that meant more to me than anything. I thought, okay, my peers took notice mm -hmm. that we really, we put a lot into it. And, you know, uh, with Hap, he is, uh, a man of few words, as everybody knows, but he's such an incredible horseman that I literally, I just said, here's it. I'm going to, pressure's off of you to write anything down. I had a, a, an assistant with me who he knew quite well. And I said, we're going to do the writing. You never look down. He said, you mean that? I said, yeah, you just, and you, I just want you to just watch, watch, mark your card, but we're going to do the, you know, the, the real nitty gritty. I look back on that, and I, I think again that was something that my experience allowed me to make that decision mm -hmm. in the moment that I, I felt comfortable enough in my bookkeeping and having an assistant there looking over my shoulder, making sure that yes, this number goes in front of that, but goes below the other, and let's make sure that the standby lists are up to date, etc. All of that, the typical bookkeeping that people don't realize how much we put into that. I agree. And also uh, the idea of having eyes on at all times. I mean, that was the thing that I felt very strongly about is having the eyes on the situation and, and Hap was phenomenal. I mean, just a, a just a top horseman, great guy. And that he just, he really shined in that moment, which was great. I look at that and I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for that. So that was 1995. And, and I just, again, that was, I was still very much living in New Jersey, continuing to travel, doing this more clinics, mm -hmm. uh, more public speaking. I was uh, incredibly grateful that I had taken voice classes and learned how to project. And I was getting, I was on camera a lot and I was being recorded in those days a lot. And I thought, you know what, why not just put it all together? And I, I, I look back on that now, and even to this day, I'm really grateful for that. There's something to be said for having that um, that comfort level. It is, and it's also I, 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 the comfort level, and I, I have to tell you, it's also having the the likes of a, the people that had been in my life that really shaped my career, and friends that I had met even that were not in non-horse. I mean, they're non-equestrians, and I had met them for one reason or another through my horse community. Actually, I, uh, I'm interested to hear about what you're doing now. What does life look like for you now? So during that time of my judging career, we uh, were very aware during the, the AIDS epidemic uh, that we needed to do something in our community, the equestrians. We really need to do something to help those that are dealing with, we're dealing with HIV. And so that was when we created the Equestrian AIDS Foundation. Mm -hmm. And we helped equestrians in their time of need. Um, and basically what we were doing is just trying to get them through a difficult time, uh, whether it was one bill at a time or however we could raise money to help them. Uh, again, it wasn't about giving them money. It was about giving them hope. And it was also about helping them get back on their feet again and hoping that one day they'd be able to 
eventually come back into the horse world and take care of themselves. And that led to 10 years later, we then actually, yes, 15 years later, we actually then created uh, the next step of the Equestrian Aid Foundation, which was we realized we could help more people if we could cast a larger net. So a great friend in New York who was a top PR woman, she said, this is what you're going to do. You're going to drop the S and you're going to be equestrian aid and you're going to start helping more people. So then we were able to reach out and help people that were dealing with life-threatening diseases and or uh, catastrophic injury and illness. And that's when the Equestrian Aid Foundation was um, kind of in a new direction, if you will. And that was something that we really felt strongly about. Gene Mish was involved, Mason Phelps, Kim Tudor, Robert Ross, Robert Dover, and myself. We were the founders. And that led to the next step of learning how to raise money for a nonprofit. And we we did that and we we continued to do that. And I was vice president for several years and then I became president. And that was something again that was very important to me. And lo and behold, we're 25 years young now. And so we're going into our 25th anniversary for Equestrian Aid Foundation. Congratulations. Thank you. It's been an incredible journey how we've kept the lights on. I mean, we're, we were just horsemen. We've been horsemen all along, just raising money with incredible people in the, in the equestrian world. I mean, it's just, uh, it's been an incredible experience to see people come together in their own community and take care of their own. And mm-hmm. so we now, our tagline is horsemen helping horsemen. And we literally take one bill at a time, or we take a situation when they're dealing with a catastrophic injury or illness. Um, we became very aware that we could help them out. We really helped them a lot. Well, that has led to today's world, which is we developed a disaster relief fund an emergency relief fund, but particularly the disaster relief fund, as you can imagine, in the past several years with natural disasters and one thing led to another. And and we've been, we have partnered and found some incredible people in this country. We find ways to, when there's uh, these incredible storms that come through, our country and there are abandoned ant horses in particular and stables that where they can't get hay for example we have partnered with uh, a hay bank to bring them hay for the time being for that horseman that couldn't afford it and they literally they didn't have any way to create this to but again it was a way to get them back on their feet and help them along the way. And then that's led to, uh, again, not only just because of the natural disasters of what we're dealing with due to climate, due to everything that we're dealing with today, but it brings us forward to this very moment, which is we, in 2020, when the pandemic hit and hit hard in March, we found an industry in in, in the United States that literally came to a screeching halt. And as you know, Every horseman that I know, whether it's and and whether it's a groom, a vet tech, and all of them right down the line, it's basically check to check. And when that halted, it came to a screeching halt. And so through our disaster relief fund, we were able to open up a way that we could help people. And so we created a disaster relief fund for COVID. And we put a, put it out there where it was a one it was a one pager about what 
you need, what your current status is, and what do you see as a way a means to uh, take care of yourself and your family? And I, with the um, incredible women that work for Equestrian Aid Foundation on a part-time basis, the girls would call me and 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 we would sit down and we went through three hundred applications, over three hundred. I read every one of them with them. And we would make the decision on behalf of the foundation because it was have we were having to move so quickly, and we were able to get uh, a two hundred fifty dollar check. And, you know, a five hundred dollar check was the maximum in the beginning, and then we were helping so many people, we reduced it to two hundred fifty dollars so we could help more people, and we were able to get almost three hundred checks out in a very short time in the very beginning of our pandemic. And it was something that, it was so touching and uh, heart-wrenching in a lot of ways. If I read one more time that I have nothing, and it was all walks of life in the equestrian world. That's what the, it, whether it was uh, somebody from the horse shows uh, and in-gate, uh, from in-gate starters to, uh, again, vet techs to grooms to people that have um, school horse lines that they couldn't even give their lessons but they had to pay their they had to somehow keep the lights on they had to be able to take care of their business and that was something that really hit home during the fires uh, in 2020 the beginning of last year was so heartbreaking on so many different levels and it makes me think how did you as one person even deal with that emotionally too to read through all those stories and i'm sure they were touching but heartbreaking at the same time like i can't tell you and i mean to the point where i didn't even go to uh, i said to the girls to um, emily cleland and, and jamie summerside who are our angels of equestrian aid foundation i just said girls we're going to roll up our shirt sleeves and we're just going to go through these and keep going through them. And it was, it was heart wrenching. If I read, I have nothing one more time. I mean, it was, it was an incredibly emotional time for me, but I feel strongly about what equestrian aid foundation, uh, the backbone of the foundation is all about, which is horsemen helping horsemen Mm -hmm. and taking care of our own that I felt like I really needed to do it. And, there was just no looking back. You know, I didn't even question it. I didn't even go any further. I just knew that I was, um, it was a very important thing for me to do on behalf of our organization. And again, we are just horse people helping our own. You know, we just, we learned, uh, we, it's, I don't know how we've kept the doors open all these years, to be honest with you. I mean, there have been many a month that I thought to myself, huh, well, this will be the last time that we may be helping these people. And, and it was just one of those. And then we've been very, very, very blessed with people who have uh, believed in our mission and continued to do so today. And I, I'm just really proud of each and every person that's either given of themselves, whether it was you know through sweat equity or through being fortunate enough to write a check, whatever level it would be, mm-hmm. it didn't matter. So it's something for me, Equestrian Aid Foundation is uh, something that, again, that I feel very strongly about that we've been able to endure 25 years, going into our 25th year now and how we move forward. And one thing led to another with that and 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 having, um, having been fortunate enough to have connections with people within the equestrian world. Stephanie Riggio Bulger and her family uh, have been very, very close to me just 
passionate as can be about the equestrian community, have done so much behind the scenes, been very much involved in the Equestrian Aid Foundation over the years, and probably couldn't even been able to keep the doors open without them continuing to say, we can do this, let's keep going, we can do it, and we did. And um, Stephanie, a year and a half ago, called me and said, I'm, I'm having a moment. I'm just a mom. I have my little boy. I'm an amateur rider, but I am just trying to be that, that girl after I ride my horses and, and compete in the morning. I wanted to, she wanted to take her horses out for a little hand graze before she went back to pick up her kid from pre-K. And literally she said, I couldn't find any clean grass anywhere. And she goes, I was seething back, driving back to the city, trying to figure out now what, you know, what do I do? And she said, I realized that I need to be one of those people that does something. And how tragic is that, that she had to feel that way? but how blessed the world is that she did and was able to put some forethought into moving forward with that. And I think you're right. And I think also, and and you know, this feeling of it affected our bubble. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden it affected our bubble and it was something about creating action. It, you know, yes, it's climate change, but what I became aware of when she called me, she was like, I just have to share this with you, Scott. I have just have to share this with you. And at that point, I was in Aiken, South Carolina, and had spent the past six years working on developing the Aiken Horse Park as a legacy to a best friend of mine and a best friend of Equestrian Aid Foundation, Bruce Duchessois, who Bruce is uh, one of the most fascinating men that I know, a best friend. He was my eyes and ears for years with Equestrian Aid. We had done a lot together. He helped me through some difficult times with the foundation about, you know, how do we move forward in a way where we keep the doors open and keep doing what we're doing. And he said to me, I really want you to be my eyes and ears. I want to create my legacy Mm -hmm. and developing the uh, Aiken Horse Park. And so here I am, Five six years later, and I'm and we've developed it. We're in the middle of the infield. We have four beautiful arenas, the best footing. Horses are happy. Everything is going. And Stephanie said, "What are you going to do?" And I said, "Well, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to start by taking your logo." So she created this green is the new blue, and she's like, "I just came up with this." And she said, I've come up with this, uh, with the logo, and here it is. And it was just, it was a ribbon, half green, half blue. And I said, oh, great idea. Now what? And I literally said, well, I'm going to make it where we are going to have plastic-free in-gates. At this point, you were just supporting her in her initiative. Just supporting. I said, let's just try it. Let's In, in honor of Bruce, let's try this. She goes, what are you going to do? And I said, i we're just going to try this. Let's see what happens. Because if I had picked up one more plastic bottle that had had two sips out of it, and then I would water the plants with the remaining of it, and I'm on, you know, being a board member there, and you know, this is something that I felt really, really passionate about, and it was Bruce's legacy. Well, they all looked at me. I always remember Liza Boyd and Daniel Geithner and Hunt Tosh and all those, you know, the great riders down south. They're like, "What are you doing?" I said. We're just we're we're, we're going to move forward here. This would be right up Bruce's right up Bruce's alley that we start to take charge of this a little bit more. And so I just started fooling with it. Well, then she had gotten on on board with a couple of the other horse shows through 
I think there had there had been at that point there had been an article in the Chronicle of the Horse. They they interviewed Stephanie and you know the Upperville Horse Show, Harrisburg, a Pennsylvania National, Washington International, and she had jumped on board. And the next thing I know, she at Hampton Classic, she said, "Would you?" I said, "What I what?" She's like, "I I need boots on the ground. I need you know." And she happened to catch me at a time where. You know, I've been very fortunate. I've done everything in, in, in that I could possibly uh, could possibly want in this horse world. Truthfully, I've done everything I really set out to do, and so I had a couple of opportunities that were being presented to me outside of this that I'd be able to use my experience, corporate sponsorship, connecting, PR, all of that. And she said would you? And, and, you know, we really talked about it. I said, I will do this, but I want to do it from a creative point of view of creating programming, creating new ideas, creating ways to encourage the horse world to become more environmentally aware. Mm-hmm. So I jumped on board in October. I dove right in at the P- Pennsylvania National and the Washington International to kind of do a soft launch, if you will. And then one thing's led to another. And uh, she still laughs to this day. She's like, you know, your favorite line is to me all the time is that, you know, Stephanie, I'm just talking trash. That's all I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> and and she always laughs about that. And, and I really, ha- I really was, I mean, that's all I was doing nonstop. And which led to this year. I mean, it was it was really trying to figure out how do we take this idea of a plastic-free in-gate. And I kept saying, Stephanie, all I'm talking about is refusing to use, refusing to use, refusing to use. And she laughed. She was like, <clears throat> I said, what? She said, that's your tagline. And that's, your, that's the campaign mm-hmm. of, and how we're going to go. And so one thing led to another. We did something with the Desert Horse Park, and we developed a touch-free watering area to go and to have your water f- bottles filled. And it was a great way to kind of get out there with the launch of the Desert Horse Park, which was terrific. And learned a lot about you know how that's going to work on the West Coast, and they're very forward-thinking. And I wanted to be in support of that new community out there, and more importantly, the the investors and the group that really came together out there to do that. And then. One thing led to another, and before I knew it, it was COVID. Mm-hmm. Well, there was no more filling up your bottle. Right. There was no more touching anything. And that's when I came up with the refuse to use. And and that was when the campaign started. And with the refuse to use, I kept looking for different ways. And we had jumped on board with the Split Rock Jumping Tour because Derek Braun has been in my life. And, and Stephanie and Derek grew up on Long Island uh, competing together, knew each other very well. And I said, why don't we get involved with this, with this company? Because they're in a different equestrian center or horse park with every one of their shows. Yeah, they move around the country. So I thought, wouldn't that be great to figure out how to get this type of movement going in the equestrian world, but get into the inner workings of each and every one of these equestrian centers and horse parks and let this be our launch. Well, that was a yes. And Mm -hmm. it was, I jumped on board immediately. And then that's when I came up with this whole connection of the refuse to use. And I found boxed water is better. A company that has really caught my eye. I have to say it's been so interesting working with a company like this. And and again, Stephanie said, so 
are they interested in our world? And I said, Stephanie, they have never even heard of the equestrian community before. Right. And one thing led to another, and I was able to use um, the Split Rock Jumping Tour to launch the Refuse to Use campaign and partnering with Boxed Water is better. And one thing led to another between Split Rock and then at uh, Capital Challenge. We did it in support of our dear uh, horse show that you and I have some great memories of. And uh, I just said, you know, this is something that we really need to do. And Jen Glass had been with me in in the desert at the Desert Horse Park. And we came up with this and we just act, had to act fast because it was relocated. And we did it. And it's been an incredible run. And now we're starting to come up with all kinds of interesting opportunities. We're launching a scholarship program next week in Wellington, Florida, Amazing. through an organization called the College Preparatory Invitational. And they have they will have three different locations throughout the year and certainly growing from there. I see many more of these to come, but it's a great way to get in front of these eight to 12th graders that are looking at colleges. They're now interested kind of, how do I take my passion of the horse world and get into this? And what we're looking at doing now is taking the passion of the horse world and those that are interested in the environment, which pretty much everybody that we've talked to of that age, they're all interested. They feel like this is no longer a choice. It's a necessity. And it's funny, when I went to school, it was it was all about reduce, reuse, recycle, and they were implementing recycling programs across the nation. And it was trying to provoke change so that we would be able to leave a cleaner uh, world to our children. And now I think, although the messaging is the same, and please correct me if I'm wrong, there's almost more of a desire to not leave the world a cleaner place to your children and grandchildren. It's we need to do something right now to make sure it's better right now. And how do we inspire people to get involved in that? I think that you're, you're spot on. It's now to me, it's a call to action and it's climate action. And I think the action is the, the key component to this right now. And it's funny, we've been going back and forth a lot about, you know, the reduce, reuse, recycle. It's still something that people relate to, but we're looking at how, we're redefining that now in today's world because my interest is to use my voice and my energy and my experience to inspire others. That's mm -hmm. solely what I'm, my focus now in life is. And I'm incredibly grateful to the Riggio family and to Stephanie for coming up with this because it's a lot of work. It, they're slow steps. We're taking very slow steps because we really want to try to catch the details along the way. But also, I think what we're, we're finding is we have an opportunity to really inspire all levels, all age brackets, all groups, all people. And if we can just inspire some real environmental stewards, whether it is through our scholarship program. I mean, it's, it, it, we're having them write essays, uh, different ideas. And I'm so, and this was Stephanie's dream. She said, I, you know, that will be down the road. Well, this opportunity was presented to us. And I said, why don't we take a small step since everything right now with the college world is kind of on hold. Why don't we get them as they're preparing for colleges, they're looking at colleges. So with this organization, with the College Preparatory Invitational, there'll be you know 75 to 100 students that will come there. And then there will be 
upwards of 15, 18. And when we come out of this COVID situation, we'll have up to 25 colleges that are being represented. So what I learned recently over this past year is that pretty much every college has an environmental arm. So why not put the two together and take those that have the passion of the equestrian community and the horse world and partner it with some real environmental practices and again the idea of what it would be like to inspire these people and the platform of green is the new blue i believe has that opportunity to do so and we've worked hard at the messaging and making it all inclusive um stephanie's favorite favorite story of the year i have to say and she wrote about it in an article recently and she's great writer she she said scott i i need to share the story and it was a it was a magazine that was focusing on phil a philanthropy and you know giving back etc there was this young lady this summer who found us she's I think she was an intermediate rider, I think is what we finally figured out. We followed her and she was at her local A horse show in Culpeper, Virginia, had gone there in her two horse trailer and got there and didn't see any recycling bin anywhere. Mm. And she saw some plastic bottles around and it, well, next thing we knew, there was a young lady walking around with a plastic bag, picking up all the plastic bottles. And she went home that night and came back the next day with her own recycling bin. Amazing. And this young lady went around and she started collecting anything that could be recycled at her house. She just collected it at the horse show. And Stephanie wrote about this young lady. She said, I feel like our mission is complete for this year because we touched that one young lady and we had, and she went out there and she represented us. And it's one of those incredible stories that to me, those are the inspiring stories. And so my mission is to continue to create more and more of these stories because I feel strongly that we can do it and we can develop uh, environmental practices within the equestrian community. And again, what I feel strongly about when using a platform like this, what I'm finding is that corporate America is also looking for these types of platforms more so now than ever. And you know that well, mm-hmm. in your position. I just have a quick question to touch on something there. Do you feel like people, everyday citizens in the equestrian community like you and I, um, do you feel like in having stewardship for the environment and being very aware of uh, the fact that we should do a better job in taking care of our surroundings, do you think that creates, having that connection, that also creates a connection in your relationship building and development with just people as well? I absolutely do. And I absolutely feel that at this moment, as a community, one of the most important things that we can do is to make the equestrian world more approachable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very important. Extremely. And it's also a way, and Stephanie feels very strongly about this as well, if this platform and this can be created into a movement within the equestrian community where all walks of life are involved. It doesn't matter what level you are, whether you're at the at the Olympic level or you're at, uh, taking one lesson a week or t- going out for a trail ride, you're in the equestrian community. You too can be involved in this. And that's my that's our mission, 
you know, that's been my focus and that's our mission with the, with the Equestrian Aid Foundation of what we've done there. But then most importantly, as far as green is the new blue with climate action, creating a way where we as a community can come together. And also as we come together and use a platform like this, we can develop this into a movement. Mm-hmm. How do you uh, suggest people get involved? In the smallest way. First things first, go to the website, greenisthenewblue.org. It can give you a lot of information. But what I also say is that start in your own stable. If you're fortunate enough to call a stable, you know, yours, whether you go there once a week, every day, every other day, once a month, it's your place. What can you do in your own community right from the get-go. Learn more, educate yourself. All of the recycling um, programs and again, the laws are different in every county and every state where you go. Learn about them because it's the simple the simple things make a difference. Refusing to use the single-use plastic has really been fascinating to see how people have taken to that. When it's just a decision, it's a simple decision. It's the same as the decision to not shake somebody's hand in 2020 or 2021 right now, because we're being advised not to. That's right. It's a decision. Don't use a plastic bottle because it's not good and we're not, we're being advised not to. And it's a great way to put it. And it's that simple though. The simplest steps can be taken. If you have to use it, then use it again. Yeah. And again, yeah. and again, and again, continue to use it until you can find a way to recycle it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that that's something that I've learned also is that, and again, we're learning as we go along. I mean, you know, that's what's so great is that for us, we're learning as we go along, how can we take it one step further? Uh, people would laugh. Margie Engel laughed when she tried the boxed water and she looked at me and she was like, it tastes really good. Scott, <laughs> I don't taste Scott. I don't taste plastic. I was like, exactly. But until we try it, do we know that we can really make a difference that way? And I think that that's the community that we are in right now is that people really want to be a part of a bigger picture. Mm-hmm. Everybody does. And, 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 you know, mother earth these days, it, it, it's precious. And, in order to have horses, we need green grass. In order to have horses, you know, green grass is hay. Let's face it, we go right down the line. You know, what 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 is your feed made up of? Let's get really simple. Get, let's get really clear here. This is what we need to be aware of. And I think that it's important for people also, and again, I'm not in your industry, but I think if you're doing something, you need to do it even though you're not getting recognition for it because you're just recognizing it yourself. So if I'm out on a walk and I see some trash, pick it up. There might not be anybody else there that's seeing you do that or recognizing that you're making a difference, but you have to feel comfortable and confident and believe and know that you're making a difference for other people, even though it's just you doing it. It's such a great way to put it. And it's a duty. It becomes yes. it becomes a duty. And along with that, what I found is that the simplest things, don't use a straw. Just don't use a straw. Just make make that a concerted effort. Mm-hmm. Don't use a plastic bag. Just don't. Exactly. What's your why? You've got it. Exactly. I mean. You're- Reusable water bottle. 
something so simple. And but these are the things that we can make. It's uh, uh, they they are simple steps, mm-hmm. but they need to be taken. And that's the thing that I've learned, and I'm continuing to learn. We are in the you know the very early stages of of, of creating this, and we are taking it one step at a time. But with Stephanie and um, her vision. The idea of being able to develop environmental stewards and the idea to encourage these young equestrians as they're going into college to study it, mm-hmm. this is the future. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm here solely to inspire and to be a part of this movement. And so as a creative director, I feel like I'm a- being able to encourage and implement direction of new ideas and new ways that we can really help the equestrian community and those that even come to our horse shows, those that are just spectators, to see that we're making an effort within our world, within the equestrian world. And it's global. And this is something that, you know, one step at a time, but this is global. And when I look around and I You know, I'm seeing so much effort in different countries around the world of people that are really trying to create a self-sustaining sport, if you will, and being very aware of this. The things, the the things that are coming to my attention right now are fascinating. Yeah, I mean, from all kinds of different things that are, and I just want to create a platform where these types of opportunities can be presented. And also people can feel like we are in this together. So we're trying to create green initiatives, green partners, people that are feeling like they want their stable to be all green. What? How can you help us? Well, here you become a partner. You become aware of what we're doing. Let's do it together. Let's join hands. Let's go in this direction. And I think that that's something that's really important. And I have to say from uh, from support of equestrian sports this is a way that we can bring in corporate america as well and and because it's they're they're not they're no longer just thinking about a green arm they need a green arm and there's strength in numbers and there is strength in knowledge very well put Mm-hmm. And so true so my question to you is how do you inspire somebody who says i'm just me I'm just me. I'm not part of corporate America. What do I do? How can I help? What? I'm just one. Start in your community. Start mm-hmm. in your stable. Bring it home to your. If you're practicing, uh, you know, again, it, it, environmentally aware practices in your home, you can do so in your stable. Mm-hmm. You can bring that to your community. You can bring that to your. If it's the smallest horse show, if it's a ten horse horse show, well, guess what. There's going to be some trash. How is it being presented? Yeah. Is there a recycling bin mm-hmm. for starters? For sure. Is there less plastic being used? Something else that we did at the Aiken Horse Park this year. The Aiken Horse Park literally was some pla- a place, again, where I felt like I could really experiment. And so we have a terrific... Um, food vendor there with perks with a twist it's a lovely couple out of camden south carolina and they've worked with me for a year and a half now and i said let's try to make everything that comes out of your uh, food truck 100 percent compostable so every food carrying product is compostable there uh, there are the straws are uh, uh, this incredible 
product that I thought, where'd you find this? She said, if you look hard enough, you can find it. Mm-hmm. And she said, and there's so much more available now that we can do. And in, in the beginning, yes, it did cost her a little bit more, but she said, I just feel so strongly. I want to be part of the green is the new blue movement. And I said, well, this is where we're going to birth it. We're going to literally, so we have everything from the smoothie cup and the straw and the lid to the soup bowl to everything you can imagine right down to the the uh, the carrier the food carrying products that are used for the sandwiches and everything else 100% compostable and it's been fascinating to to use uh Aiken Horse Park uh and and the legacy of Rustachiswa to to really use this as a springboard mhm mhm and it's just the beginning i think i i i truly feel it's just the beginning. Absolutely. Everything has to start from somewhere and small steps lead to big change. Very much so. Yeah. So congratulations. Thank and you. I'm proud of you. Thank you. That means a lot. Thank you. We've we've shared a lot of life together and I know how you feel about this and and talking to you about, you know, the the practices in Canada right now and mm-hmm. and very important and something that I'm I, I, I'm most impressed with with the practices in Canada, you know, we, we, it's a great thing to be able to aspire to. Uh, it's the same thing with, um, Europe, you know, when I hear about some incredible things that are happening in Europe right now, and even some of the horse shows that are truly becoming self-sustaining and, uh, thinking about the future and how they can become, uh, I say more modern, if you will, you know, be current with what's happening because the reality is, it's a responsibility now. We, yeah, we it is. it's no longer a choice. It's a responsibility. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and parents are feeling that with their kids. So many, so many of the of the equestrians and, and the professionals, kids, you know, they 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 come to me and they say, Scott, our kids are ready to, you know, to march. There's they feel so strongly about this. They wanna they really want to be part of the movement. And that's what we need to be able to do is, you know, be able to give them the the platform and also the support and let them know that there's something like this exists out there. Mm-hmm. I remember when we were talking earlier this week, you said three things to me, messaging, implementation, action. And it's, I've learned so much of that. I, again, th- th- I, I bring that forward from my, uh, my career and um, I feel like now I'm able to use my voice, my energy and uh, my experience um, for something that's so important right now, because uh, I've had a hell of a run. Yeah, yeah, an amazing one. And if I can go back to that top ten issue, uh, I would, in my own opinion, say that you are definitely top three. Thank you. That means a lot. I've been very fortunate. I've had incredible people that have really helped me along the way. So I, I have a lot of people that um, that have been there for me. And I, and I encourage people to do the same now for others. And I'm trying to do the same as well. Uh, and I appreciate having the opportunity to use this as a, again, your platform as to uh, inspire, mm-hmm. uh, inspire others in our community and beyond. And I hope that this does so. And I'm always open to continuing conversation with anybody that has questions or ideas or how'd you, the, the how'd you do it. And that's what your what's your why is all about. I love your what's your why. Perfect. And can I recommend maybe a division moving forward of green is the new blue and maybe it should be green is the new red. 
Ah. ah, we do different first place colors. In this I know country. you do. I know you do. <laughs> I think there's something there. I think North America, we may have something. You may have something there. I like that. <laughs> right? I like that. Scott, if you don't mind, can we just revisit meditation for a minute? Something that you had mentioned earlier that I just wanted to touch on quickly. I have a hard time with it. And I remember a couple of years ago when you were last here, you said to me, meditate in the morning, you should do this, you should do that. And I really do think that it's something important, but I don't know how to get there. I don't have those tools. What I found is that we are creatures of habit. And along with being creatures of habit, ritual is very important to that in, inner gut. That 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 little place within ourselves that you know the answers are there. Sometimes if we just are quiet, we can listen to our gut. We take a breath. We can kind of feel like what we know, that's the right thing to do in the moment. If we, as I say, getting out of our own way. Mm. And sometimes the way that I have found over the years that when I come across a bumpy time is that when I create the ritual of every morning, and I did this in every hotel room around the world, you know, I mean, I've just, I've had to take it with me because what my meditation teacher said to me is like, you can take this with you. You can't, this is you. Nobody can take it away from you, but you've got to be true to you. And I will always remember that. And so every morning, I find, whether it's in a hotel room, I find that little chair over there that just happens to be the spot where I'm going to start my day. And if I and and again at home, I have a place, I have a special room that is just my quiet room, and I do nothing else in that room. Kind of like when you just, in other words, picking a place in your world that's your spot, picking a place in your world that is a sacred place for you to just be calm, be quiet and go there. And it's almost like when you go there and you start thinking about, well, if I just look within a little bit, what would it be like to just follow my breath into my heart within myself? And now we've come to what some would call the very best part of the show, our segment appropriately named What's and Why's. It's where we get to ask our guests some questions that inquiring minds want to know. So without further ado, I bring you the what's and why's for your listening pleasure. So question number one is, who do you look up to and why? In this day and age, I think more than ever, I become incredibly aware of those people that step up in these times especially through their work, through them being who they are, whether it is a friend or it is a co-worker, it is very clear to me that people are reaching out now in a very humble way because these are really crazy times that we're living in right mm -hmm. now. We are, we are on a global level dealing with something that none of us could have ever imagined we'd be dealing with. Mm -hmm. And what is so fascinating and so heartwarming is that people are stepping up for others in all walks of life. 
and I applaud so many people in doing so. I feel really strongly about that. And and, and it literally is, it, it comes right down to all shapes and sizes, not even in the, not even just focused on the equestrian world. It's everybody, but the small steps, being able to reach out. We t- we're talking about frontliners right now. We're talking about nurses. We're talking about people. We're talking about people even picking up the phone and talking to people and having communication with those that are in quarantine and lockdown, like so many of us are. Mm-hmm. It's about being human. It's about reaching out and creating that connection. Mm-hmm. What's something that brings you joy and why? Truthfully, I have to say my career would uh, be a testament to this is the connection of horse and human. I think the connection is really what it's about. It has taught me so much about my life. The, the horses have taught me so much in many different ways, in communication, in looking within in trusting my inner voice, uh, the connection of horse and human is first and foremost. When you look back through your life, what decision brings you the most happiness and why? You know, it, it, I go back to what we were talking about earlier, which is thankfully starting on that path of being a judge early on. I pursued it early on. I gave up everything in my life to pursue my my judging career and my teaching and becoming a horseman that I felt more than anything that I literally did sacrifice a lot. I'm totally aware of that, and I'm grateful for every second of it. I was uh, at a p- place in my life where I could have gone in another direction when I was living in New York and had some other things being presented to me, and I felt this is it for me. And so for me, I think it's really about pursuing my judge's career, pursuing my um, my career as a teacher and a trainer very early on. Mm-hmm. I'm incredibly grateful that I trusted myself to be able to do it and took the chance. Yeah. What's something that you feel people get wrong about you and why? Good way to put this. Uh, uh, and what a good question, by the way. I think I really like that. I really focus on any way that I possibly can in maintaining a profile, a lower profile, if you will, to be able to use my voice. I want to be able to use my voice rather than who I am, but use my voice to uh, inspire the greater good in people and in paths that people take in life. It's a powerful place to be, and I learned that the hard way. I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, Who would you like to hear on What's Your Why next as a guest and why? What I would like this platform to be able to bring to your audience and beyond and are those people that can inspire. Inspire us to be better. Inspire us to think outside the box, encourage people to use their own energy and their own experience, really, is what I've learned more than anything, using my experience to inspire others. And that can be horse-related, non-horse-related. We have so many ways to help others and inspire others just by being us. Mm Mm-hmm. 
you are a perfect example of that because what you, what you've done is that you've created a platform to be able to develop this you have a you have a real uh gift of connecting to people people you're very approachable people feel comfortable they feel open they they don't feel any intimidation whatsoever and that's something right there where you're giving people a platform to speak freely and what i find is that when we do this in general and I've learned this through so many people that I've dealt with in my life, whether they are celebrities, where they where they they are, you know, honored in their own world, if you will, or they're they're known on a uh, global level, whatever it may be. And I've been fortunate; I've dealt with a lot of them over the years. What I keep coming back to is that those people who inspire others through their own actions. And I believe you have an opportunity to do that here. I'm so flattered by you. I'm beyond flattered by you and thankful for you as well. For those of you that can't see, there's a tear <laughs> rolling down my cheek right now. You're an amazing human being. And I'm, I say to everybody all the time, I'm so thankful you're my friend. And I don't know how to change those words to make you truly feel that. But I'm just so thankful for people like yourself in my life. I really, truly am. And if I can help you in your goals. And if I can help you inspire others, whatever we can do to uh, make the world a better place, I'm on board and I'm always on board with you. Thank you. That means a lot. And I, and again, to all your listeners and to your followers and to new people as well that are looking for this type of information, more so now than ever, this is where we are. People are hungry people mm -hmm. we, we we need to fill people up with inspiration and that we can do this we are going to see this through this time of our lives and we've got to stay vigilant and be true to be true to the direction that we're that we're, that that's being created here on this platform it seems like inspiration is sort of a theme that's followed you throughout life and that you've tapped in on and now created for others well, thank you. And I appreciate that. And it's also something that, you know, uh, I, I'm not saying it's been an easy road, but I learned from those bumpy moments that it's about stay true to you. Yeah. Stay true to you. That's what I kept hearing all the time. Stay true to you. And I feel that uh, again and again. And if I go a little off course, I just grab myself and stay true to you. Come back on course, get between those lines, stay in your lane and keep going forward. Words to live by. I'd like to thank everyone for joining us for this episode of What's Your Why? Our listeners, guests, and our sponsors too. It's our hope that you enjoyed your time with us and possibly gained some new perspective as well. It's said that we can learn something new every day if we just listen, and that knowledge has a beginning but no end. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, be safe, be well, and remember... Always leave people better than you found them. A Twisted Spur Media Production.